This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Titi Nianduk, Head of Asia from Pearson Affordable Learning Fund. We discuss the investment thesis of the fund and their focus on education startups globally and specifically in Southeast Asia. Titi also shared her perspectives on edtech startups, the global and regional trends, and where the potential exit possibilities are for them. Hi, Titi. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Great. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for making this interview. We are about 12 hours away. You're based in New York, right? Yes. And my fund, Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, is based in New York. Uh, but we're a global fund, so we cover different markets around the world. And yes, I'm talking to Titi Nianduk, Head of Asia, Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, a $65 million US dollar fund investing in education technology, services and solutions for affordable education in Africa, Asia and Latin America. In fact, I got this interview with Titi through the help of the EdTechX Asia Conference, which are going to be coming to Singapore, right? Yes, it's happening next week. So we're looking forward to having 600 key influencers coming to Singapore to discuss global and regional trends throughout Asia. This is very interesting because you're probably my first guest who's going to talk about education tech or ed tech in Asia. Before that, I want to start to get to know you better. How do you start your career? Actually, I was just as a background, I was born and raised in Thailand um, to Vietnamese parents. And I was fortunate to receive a scholarship to leave Thailand to attend Stanford University in California. Back then, I was completing my neuroscience bachelor's and industrial engineering master's. And I developed a medical device, which then I sold to a biotech company. So that was my first foray into startups. Upon graduating, I wanted to continue the process of learning. And I basically optimized my career paths to enable this. So then I joined Oliver Wyman as a management consultant where I focused on gaining exposure across different geographies. And there I covered APAC. So I I worked in Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and Australia, along with multiple US-based Fortune 500 companies. And then from that foundation, I wanted to continue developing strategy for the education industry. And that's sort of where the rest of my career in education started. So I joined Chegg, which is based in Santa Clara and Mountain View, which is an education company. My business and my role there was to help transition the business, which at that point was primarily a textbooks rentals business, to become a digital hub for online learning as they were preparing their business for an IPO in 2013. And then I joined Skillshare, which is a another online learning platform. It's in a lifelong learning space to help lead the startup to in their Series A fundraising efforts to help grow and expand their business. At that point, a year ago, I joined Pearson Affordable Learning Fund to support entrepreneurs and scale innovative startups to focus on Asia, which for me is a perfect confluence of all my interests in education and Asia. Being an entrepreneur myself and being on the other side of the fundraising table, I have extreme respect for individuals who dedicated efforts to improving the quality and access for learning. From your various roles in consulting with Oliver Wyman, in business side with Check and Skillshare and your own startup as well, what are the interesting career lessons you can share with my audience? The first would be to invest in yourself with your career as part of this lifelong learning process. For the generations before us, most of them and their parents included, they invested in home ownership, 
car ownership and basically rents it out and hire labor. Now our economy has flipped this equation so that we rent homes, we rent our cars and instead invest in ourselves. So when investing yourselves, we need to have a clear gliding principle. And for me, my passion for education is essentially my North Star. My parents never had the opportunity to go to secondary school. And just like how home ownership is the American dream, this education ownership and education attainment is the ultimate dream for most Asian households. That's, I'm aware you have the same experience. It provides a path to escape this cycle of multi-generational poverty. I guess the second lesson is just to surround yourself with people you admire and respect. Similar to clusters of innovation for startups in, San in Silicon Valley, you need to be surrounded by people with a similar drive to change the world. And once you find these people, you should collaborate and share your learnings. Your career advancement isn't just a zero-sum game, and somebody doesn't have to lose in order for you to win. So it's just better to collaborate and share your knowledge to progress collectively. I can actually identify with that, as you were mentioning about the dream of getting a good education. I think that, like you yourself, I'm a beneficiary of my parents who actually ha never even have secondary education. That comes to the topic for today, which we want to talk about is the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund. Can you briefly introduce Pearson, the company, the British multinational publishing and education company? As far as I know, the revenue in 2015 is at £4.48 billion. And also what the company does. I, I, in fact, I do know that some of the textbooks I use to teach yes. academia is also from Pearson. So maybe you can tell me about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny because that's often the first touch point with most people and students, especially in Asia, I guess, for Pearson is the textbook that we have to learn in high school. And that for me is the case too. But more generally, Pearson is the world's leading learning company. And they have expertise in educational courseware and assessments. And they have a range of teaching and learning services, mostly powered by technology. And the mission for Pearson is to help people make progress through access and better learning. Pearson builds on leading the presence in developing markets and developed markets and through Paul, which is our fund, they were able to reach learners in more global developing markets. So can you give an introduction to the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund and its, its relation to Pearson? And also at the same time, talk about the mission and the vision of the fund itself. Absolutely. So Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, or PALF for short, was launched by Pearson in July 2012, uh, initially with a $15 million of capital. Uh, so later on, Pearson committed an additional $15 million to expand our work in emerging markets. Ultimately, the mandate is to invest in companies that can build quality and scalable education solutions to meet the growing demand for affordable learning services across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The fund invests in companies across the learning spectrum, so from early childhood to higher education and lifelong learning. We invest in late C Series A, typically around like a $1 million check size, and we follow our money in later rounds. And we invest in a time when we can help companies grow and reach the mass market to create substantial and transformative change within the local markets. For the vision and mission for, of the um, company, we're basically tackling the three fundamental challenges that exist in education. What we talked about earlier, Bernard, is first that, that there's just unequal access to quality education. Not everybody in throughout the world and developing, even in developed markets, have the benefit of getting into the top universities or private schools. Second, everybody have different and varying learning needs. So the one-size-fits-all learning no longer is applicable in this market. And third, the new economy increasingly demands a new type of skills for career and life success. So the fund is set so that based on the belief that everybody, whether they're children or adults, and no matter their background, 
economically or where they live should they should have access to high quality education or are prepared for the changing realities in the workforce. And Paul is specifically focused on the low and middle income learner segments around the world so that they can have the necessary skills to uh, make progress in their lives. You talk a little bit about the how the fund invests in which stage and also part of what kind of startups that they invest in. Does the fund itself have an investment thesis, for example? Yes, uh, we are laser focused on education companies in the developing world that demonstrate high learning gains in exchange for low costs. At PALF, we invest in education companies that provide the greatest potential for growth, scalability, and impact on learner progress, which we call efficacy. We explore opportunities across different kinds of innovation, but mostly what we need to do, what we do is that we pair this with this innovation with rigorous analysis on their learning effectiveness and efficacy, and we help these schools and products grow, scale, and reach more learners. We invest across different regional markets, across different income levels and age groups. As I said, ultimately it is to drive access to high-quality education. And by doing this, we're able to reduce the opportunity gaps that exist all around the world and level the playing field. So how does the fund select the companies for investments? Are the tech companies strictly for profit? The companies we invest in must be able to scale and reach mass market learners. So this is in most of the developing markets are the lower and middle income segments. We think that by able to deliver strong learning outcomes, it becomes the defining competitive advantage in a space. We have developed a sophisticated method for measuring these learning outcomes and efficacy, which we apply to every investment we make. So companies that we invest in beyond reporting their operational and growth and financial figures, they also report against how much the students have improved over the course of the products that they've interacted with and or the schools in which we invested in. So that's essentially the DNA of the businesses. And we believe that would help drive the field forward. So these companies must demonstrate that there are positive learning outcomes, as it describes, and that they have a deep understanding of how they, the theory of change and how they can measure these outcomes to to help improve learning and teaching outcomes. To your question whether we invest in for-profit companies, as a VC fund, we invest in for-profit companies. And, and the theory behind this is that it is the most constructive role for the for-profit segment is that it is it provides a unique level of stability in the education system with the funding. So it doesn't go through the same cyclical patterns as the uh, grant cycle or government um, decision-making process. And by being able to establish sustainable business models, the for-profit play is that it will demonstrate to governments that these innovations can answer the most important question in education, which is how can we ensure that every child has access to high-quality education? So through our companies, uh, we're able to demonstrate that you can provide quality more cost-effectively and, and cheaply than a lot of these government actors. And then we reset the standards and establish strong, uh, transparent standards across all schools, whether they're public or private schools. I want to follow up on the point about when you select the companies and then you measure them against certain metrics that's related to education and the amount of impact that they could do to help to enhance learning for individuals. Uh, what kind of metrics do you usually measure? Yes, for learning outcomes, we measure a few things. A lot of it is, if you look at the volume of learning, is the breadth, how long 
learner hours is what we measure. So this is applicable to both brick and mortar schools, so physical schools and also online education companies. So that way you're able to measure apples to apples, just the hours that students take. So that's one thing. We also measure um, learning progress. So we do a lot of pre post and also throughout the learning process. So it's a much more dynamic and formative testing as opposed to a summative testing, which is like the high stakes one that we're familiar with in, in a lot of these programs. So other than skill and the mission that is driven towards trying to get more people to have affordable learning, what are the other attributes of the education technology companies that the fund is likely to invest in? Investees must be focused on learning outcomes, as we mentioned, profitability, and are able to address this affordability and accessible space. We are interested in supporting companies that contribute to the idea of a more equitable society through education. And by providing early capital in companies with good unit economics, we're able to support them to grow and scale. So what kind of startup founders and team that will have interest to the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund then? At PALF, we stress global principles and local context. So we invest in local entrepreneurs based on a lot of global uh, companies that have already proven the model. So the reason why we invest in the local entrepreneurs is that these leaders are able to uniquely understand the students and their markets. Also, half of our capital is invested in female founders. So this is unique, especially in a world where a lot of startups are both in both developing and developed countries are overwhelmingly male. Just overall, we back the best founders building companies that deliver education in new ways. Um, our entrepreneurs basically innovate across the spectrum. For So they look into the pedagogy, uh, software, the cost distribution. Across this, we basically try to help engage with the students directly over the world for across the early childhood to lifelong learning. What are the interesting companies that have benefited from the fund in Southeast Asia or elsewhere? Maybe you can give a few examples. Oh, great. So the markets in which we've, we have invested in is in South Africa, Ghana, India, and Philippines. In these markets, they lag in both equity and achievement. So with the income inequality growing, our focus in these markets has powerful implications on the education attainment. Through our portfolio, we um, serve close to a million learners to date. For examples, there's APEC, which is a low-cost private school chain in the Philippines. It started as a JV with Ayala, which is a conglomerate based in the Philippines. And the core value proposition there is, like the other companies in our portfolio, is on affordable and high-quality education. The curriculum is designed to produce competitive graduates, secondary school graduates that qualify to enter the professional workforce. Within the three years in which APEC was created and scaled, the school chain now comprises of 27 schools in Metro Manila and serves 10,000 students within that short time frame. What we're proud of is that this year, APEC launched a voucher program in conjunction with the government to grant 3,500 public school graduates free enrollment into our APEC schools which is a great example of how you can collaborate with the government to help drive the education field forward. Similar to APEC schools, there are Spark Schools, which is a school chain in South Africa. Uh, we invested in Spark Schools in their Series A, and they just closed their $9 million Series B round, uh, where we were joined by Midiar and others. So Spark Schools is, is a great example. It's the first blended learning school chain in the African continent. And it's modeled after the U.S.-based um, rocket ship charter school model. 
their efficacy report from Spark is quite impressive. 91% of their schools who come from all low-income families across South Africa, they have achieved a year and a half growth of learning over the course of just one year. So the plan here with the new investment is to scale the schools to reach at some point over 6,000 students across more than 60 schools. And the third example, I guess, we can pull from um, investments in India. So Avanti, which is a test prep center for students in India, focused on the low-income segment, has helped one of her students. His name is Ayush Sharma. He just got a full scholarship to MIT last year, which is a great way to just show how just dedication um, in this market do provide real value. That's interesting. So, which comes to another interesting point. EdTech investments are actually becoming more and more popular globally. What I'm interested to talk to you as well in this conversation is that I want to look into the global and regional EdTech investment trends. My first question would be, what is the current funding appetite for EdTech startups by venture funds like yours, which focuses on education? Right. Just to set the context on how the financing and EdTech industry has changed over time, there's been consistent growth in funding for EdTech at, since 2010. This funding and the activity surge and reach a peak last year in 2015, where there's a record of $2.8 billion of funding in education. And some of the notable deals in education is Tudor Group in China, which had a $1 billion dollar valuation. There's Linda's acquisition by LinkedIn at $1.5 billion, and Udacity, for instance, that has a $1.1 billion valuation. So there is a lot of activity right now. However, prior to this, there's been a hold in a lot of investments. And this is partly because in, I guess, 2000s, a lot of venture capitals put in $1 billion and 65 deals across charter school chains and computer labs. And, and at that point, the stock market tanked and a lot of these education companies crashed too. Uh, So it took some time for the economy to recover and for a lot of investors to be interested again in this sector. So there are multiple trends that converged around 2010 that drew back a lot of entrepreneurs and investors back into education. So first, ecosystems have lowered barriers for entrepreneurship. There's a lot of emergence of accelerators globally. So in Philadelphia, there's Dremet in Vietnam, this Topica, for instance, that help create a critical mass of innovation that is necessary for this industry in at tech to develop. Second, the capital that re-entered was firstly mission-focused, see investors, angels, and venture firms that feel these ecosystems. And after uh, with, with this early capital, eventually investment firms that specialize in education then entered the scene. So, so these includes funds like PALF, Rethink Education, Al Ventures, Learn Capital. And overall, these education-specialized firms raised more than $500 million to invest in, in this sector. And the benefit of having these kind of specialized investment firms is that they apply the market discipline in investing and uh, data-driven outcome approach to the sector, which in turn then attracted the more generalist VCs to invest in education. So in the past four or five years, you'll, you'll see a lot of the generalist VC firms like NAA, Spark, Unisquare Ventures that normally wouldn't really look into the space. Now they're looking into it and investing perhaps like one to two deals a year. So overall, it's gone quite exciting. And then I guess the last actor that's joined the scene are a lot of these international investors, which particularly come from China, that are looking and pouring money into the ed tech space. Overall, I think this is great news because most investors have no longer been asking the question of whether they should invest in ed tech or not. 
now the question that they were asking is uh, where to invest. So do you think that the current funding climate is sustainable? The activity to ad tech companies around the world has slowed quite a bit since this peak uh, last year in 2015. However, if you measure this against the rest of the venture world, the overall ad tech investment scene is quite tiny. It's just at 2% of the entire venture industry. So I do expect that the U.S. market would grow, but would be slightly offset by slight devaluation and valuations. Overall, for the international funding scene, though, there's a lot of opportunity for growth there. So the international market for ad tech now accounts for 40% of the funding in ad tech. And there's a lot of opportunity for growth specifically in India and Southeast Asia, as it coincides with a slowdown in China. So last year, India led most of the international growth in ad tech funding, followed by China. And then this year, it was bookmarked by Ju's large growth equity round at $75 million. China is slightly slowing down, but they're still known for the mega rounds. They had four $100 million uh, deals last year. So there's Twitter Group being their most well-funded ad tech startup. I think overall, though, that funding would increase over time, as some of the 2012 to 2014 investments will start to reach meaningful scale so that it will alleviate the concerns that education can't be profitable. So that by building out this middle tier of companies that and once they reach revenue north of, say, $100 million, it will have critical mass for a lot of these further investments and whisper acquisitions. How would you describe the attack ecosystem in Southeast Asia? Because you covered China and India to a certain extent in the mm-hmm. earlier question. It's the same trends that are being observed in other markets that bring down the cost of education is emerging in and being seen in Southeast Asia. So these are the catalytic factors of broadband infrastructure in schools. There's widespread use of low-cost devices. There's the smartphone adoption. As a result, a lot of ad tech scale, uh, companies can scale without needing as much capital, without hiring a capital-intensive sales team, for instance. Regarding funding in Southeast Asia, it's underpenetrated by venture capital compared to India and China, despite the fact that Southeast Asia's addressable market is roughly equivalent to tier one cities in India. Much of the investments and ad tech companies are still in the build stage. So a lot of the funding activity is concentrated in the seed and early stages. So angel, seed, series A mostly. If you're comparing across all venture capital globally, seed companies and investments normally account for 30% of deals. If you look at ad tech in the US, seed accounts for say half of US deals. And you look in Southeast Asia, uh, the proportion of, uh, of seed deals are significantly much more pronounced. As a result, there is oversubscription in, in these early deals, but there remains a funding gap in the Series A and growth equity. 500 Startups has been one of the most active investors in Southeast Asia for ed tech. And then there are now much more funds such as PAL, for instance, that are trying to fill in the gap for Series A and, and beyond. Another thing is that it's also different from a lot of U.S.-based companies where these ad tech companies prioritize user growth, the hockey stick growth that you normally see over monetization. On the flip side, investors in Southeast Asian market question early on the ability of these companies to generate revenue. That's a filter that's applied early on, whether this company has a sustainable business model. And however, overall, Paul still considers Southeast Asia one our high priority market. And then 
I do see that um, Southeast Asia has the strongest edtech founders that we come across globally. Do you find it very difficult because Southeast Asia is also a very fragmented market because you have very developed cities like Singapore and you also have developing countries coming up like Philippines and Indonesia and frontier markets like Myanmar? Absolutely. Considering the overall demographic opportunity of Southeast Asia, so it's at 650 million, which is the third largest labor in, in the world, isn't sufficient because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of differences across these regions. So treating that as a single group isn't sufficient and actually is one of the biggest challenges to expansion for a lot of these Western companies. So the ability to contextualize and localize the products, particular to each geographies and even cities, which operate very differently, is the key to winning these markets. You have touched on the global attack investment trends and those pertaining to Southeast Asia. So I wanted to go into something that a particular trend that has actually been happening in the past few years. There's a rise of the massive open online courses they're called the MOOCs and many education initiatives that have emerged and scaled from developed to developing countries. How do you see these companies moving forward? So MOOCs is part of the key inflection points in the education system. And prior to MOOCs, the first is internet, which basically allows data to come from sources outside from your schools and teachers. The second inflection point is the mobile and smartphone, such that learning can come outside of the school building itself. The third inflection point ultimately is the social learning. So Facebook driving a lot of the communication. And here learning can happen outside of the classroom experience and your classmates. MOOCs now entered here and becomes, it's the next inflection point such that adoption, adoption is normalized for online learning. So if you look at the leading indicators in the United States, already 71% of classrooms are already using a mix of online uh, learning in their teaching environments at different integration levels. Overall, MOOCs fall under this definition of inflection point because ultimately it's an equalizer and it enables learning to happen across for the mass market. So with MOOCs, higher education no longer is bottleneck for the privilege and is limited to those who can afford it or who can get in. And the new version of MOOCs now, are, I guess, are the for-profit online learning courses that are developed in the U.S. and now expanding into these developing markets. So you'll see, for instance, Coursera just raised a, a CRC funding with $49 million. Udacity raised $100 million. Udemy raised 60 million. Skillshare did $12 million. And all this was, is with the intention to expand internationally and scale this process of online learning. As mentioned earlier, as they expand into these different markets, they need to really consider how to adapt their playbook for growth, not only across categories, but also just to focus on the localization and contacts of the, the new markets to account for diversity of users, uh, both across geography, socioeconomically, and also culturally. There is still a very traditional way of looking at operations in education institutions where physical infrastructure and labor costs are concerned. Can these tech companies replace the traditional institutions? I mean, they are trying to disrupt it, for example, for the MOOCs. Would you see that replacement happen at some point in time? Yeah, so tech in my view, is just a delivery solution. Just like technology is, it helps cost-effectively distribute content and pedagogy to a wider and more targeted audience. However, the blind adoption of tech, at tech or digital solutions doesn't address the process of learning. There's often talk about education without addressing learning. So for both offline and online models, there is a need to demonstrate that 
your products and services do increase the learning process, which is similar to how in the healthcare industry, when healthcare investors invest in companies, they need to basically demonstrate that it provides efficacy to their patients. So the same principle should be applied to the education sector so that it's just not talk about um, innovation for the education system, whether it's technology, but it also focuses really on the students and the learning process. Um, the one thing that ed tech can't replace, though, are teachers. We believe uh, that the role of the teacher is to facilitate learning. So teachers are there to stimulate, they provoke, engage, inspire, and motivate. And what we need to do with a lot of these solutions is to approach the teachers and invest in them and their professional development and not look at them as a cost center. So one of the other things that is very difficult to replace with traditional educational institutions is the problem of signaling. I think I read Salman Khan's book about the Khan Academy. So how does EdTech companies deal with the signaling problem in which they need to offer certification and accreditation to the courses attended? The education system needs to move away from elite institutions being the bottleneck of credentialing. Degrees, historically, was a proxy indicator for quality. It is mostly brand-focused and lacks the visibility into skills. It's a stamp of education. It's a stamp of whether you can enter the educational and learning institution, but doesn't indicate the process of learning afterwards. And without learning, there is no real education. Secondly, the unpredictability of the future is extraordinary. We're meant to teach the current students based on a static system that was created for industrial revolution and for static jobs. Given these two different things, what we need to move towards to is just demonstrating an outcome-based learning or competency-based learning. Increasingly, this degree would be replaced with a skills portfolio. So this is a shift towards a relevant education, which is relevant to both the employment market and the individual, as opposed to relevancy to for the education um, institution. So what this means is that we're moving towards tracking progress, competency, and mastery of the skills. And similarly for assessments, that should move away from a high-stakes summative testing and be able to provide a more formative function to allow for much more real-time learning and adjustments. So does emerging markets actually offer new attack innovation that can actually grow from ground up and not created in the developed markets and then shift to the emerging markets then? I know there's two distinct tech innovations that are emerging in markets like Southeast Asia or Africa that are unique or are particular to these markets and not initiated in the developing markets. So first, there is the focus on last mile distribution and connectivity. Unlike the Western models, accessibility isn't an afterthought, partly because of a lot of the infrastructure issues and also the scale, for instance, in Indonesia with the many islands. So oftentimes, the EdTech companies that I observe in these markets, for instance, look into how to reaching their last mile customer foremost and work backwards. From these, uh, you'll see a lot of focus on companies that provide connectivity in a classroom, for instance, like our portfolio company, Zaya, in India, that basically addresses this connectivity issue. Companies also, as a product feature on the mobile and the web-based products, is also offering a lot of download and offline uh, viewing versions because that's highly impacting their learning process. And, And the second thing that we observe that are unique to companies in these markets is that there's a huge focus on community based learning and trust platforms, which are very important. 
So reputation systems need to be developed beyond just a five-star rating, which is normalized, I guess, a lot through Uber and, and Yelp, for instance. And what this means is that if you're working with communities in rural Africa or India or, for instance, in Indonesia, you're working with the community. So you're working with the local governments, teachers, and students and families. And you need to engage them meaningfully and understand sort of what are the barriers for them to enroll their students into these online platforms or physical schools and address and acknowledge this trust platform based on this community-based um, patterns. So my penultimate question, how does ad tech companies actually exit? I mean, there is a social mission. I've seen so many of these moves. Is there going to be a path to consolidation or maybe we might have a situation might Harvard might decided to actually acquire one of these companies? Yeah, and th that's a great question, partly because it hasn't been an occurrence as frequently as in other industries. However, if you look at several ad tech companies over the past years, in the US, for instance, some of them have reached the public market. So Chegg, uh, my former employer, IP in 2013, a lot of exit activity hit a peak in 2012 with around 60 or 61 exits that occurred. So there are three kind of three main kind of acquires in the ad tech space. First, there's the media and tech companies. So there's Bertelsmann and Naspers, for instance. Um, Bertelsmann invested in Udacity, was part of the hot truck deal. Naspers invested in Code Academy, Udemy, Brainly. So these uh, media companies are, are looking towards expanding their content platform and reaching the student user base to expand and grow their businesses. Second, you see the private equity firms. And there's like Insight Venture Partners. And a lot of the play here is to look towards assembling more platforms and expanding their market share there. And third, I guess, are education companies like Pearson, McGraw-Hill, that are looking to expand their digital and B2C product portfolio. However, what I described here are exits that tend to occur in the mature markets. And generally, exits is a function of how healthy the ecosystem is across all levels. So it wouldn't be fair to compare the lack of exits to date in the ad tech scene in Southeast Asia, partly because the ecosystem in education just started a few years ago, while the U.S. space is much more mature and evolved. For Asia, for, uh, however, um, the key here to developing a healthy and robust ecosystem is basically by raising the awareness of the regions of sort of how the entrepreneurs are innovating uniquely for these markets. And hopefully the acquisitions would eventually occur. And these could be done by larger acquirers um, through the Chinese players, for instance, or the international players that are looking to expand into these markets. And rather than localization, they're localizing their products, um, they can acquire these local players. Well, this is a pretty interesting topic. I guess the ad tech investments stories are going to continue. And I think from what you have pointed out, this the trends of actually more and more of these ground up innovations and educations to scale, to help people to be able to afford learning will go on massive scale. So TT, as always, my last question is, how can my audience find you? I highly encourage all founders and startups to actually reach out to me. I'm happy to just talk to them. And it's a great learning process for me and hopefully I can be of help to them. So you can reach out to me um, directly through my email, very reachable at tt dot my last name, N-G-U-Y-E-N-D-U-C at Pearson.com or my Twitter handle, it's at 
T-T, also my last name, N-G-U-I-E-N-D-U-C, and LinkedIn too. And you can find me at bleungcw.bernardleung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play in the US market. And of course, drop me a note and of course, give me any recommendations that you would want to get a guest on the show. And Titi, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard, for having me on Analyze Asia.